All right. Glad that you are here this morning. Had a good uh, good time yesterday at the the picnic. Good weather and uh, good fellowship. Good food and thankful for the opportunity for that. Uh, this week we have several things that are are going to be happening. So if you are available for for uh, help and out- outreach. Uh, we definitely could use you, particularly Saturday. Thursday and Saturday are the two big days. So if you are tied up on Monday and Tuesday, you know, understand, um, certainly would welcome as many people can come on those days. But, if the, you know, you say, I can only give one day. Uh, you can only give one day. Come to Wednesday. That's the time in which uh, we're going to have our normal service. And Dr. Dawson's going to be here. But but uh, if you can give a day for outreach, then I would say Thursday's the day. That's going to be the... Today we're going to be canvassing a lot of the areas around here, and um, if for some reason that you can't canvass one of those evenings, Monday, Tuesday, or, or Thursday evening at 7 o'clock, we will have some packets available, and unfortunately I don't have any today because I'm still waiting on the postcards to arrive, so um, so uh, so we'll have those on Wednesday. If you want to pick one up on Wednesday, maybe you can do it during the day. Uh, the ideal time to canvass, as you know, is when people are home, so uh, the evenings are best. But if you could do Friday instead of Thursday, then then that that would be great. But obviously, uh, with Friday, we have the Fourth of July parade, and so we're we're not expecting anyone to come out and canvass that evening. But if you'd like to, we may still have some some streets that need to be canvassed, and uh, there'll be instructions on there as to what kind of things you need to say. It's not. Um, the goal is not to get into a, a spiritual conversation, although, I mean, you need to be open for that and ready for that. The primary goal is just to tell them that we're having this event on Saturday, the community cookout. It's at our church from 12 to 4. We'd love for you to come and just want to let you know that we're here and that we care and um, want to see as many people as we can come to this event so that we can uh, just interact with them and then tell them a little bit more about our, our church and give them some opportunity to know about some of the upcoming events. In your bulletin this morning, you if you've received one, uh, you have a schedule for the next three months for sermons as well as for um, for the spiritual success class, which you're in right now. And um, if you look at that, if you don't have one, it's okay. Um, next week, we're going to continue on in our study of biblical counseling. And then we're going to take a three-week break to talk about our church to introduce our church. So, what what I'm trying to do here is, we have a bunch of people coming to this event, and so we want to be able to hand them something and say, here, here's something that you can come to, and it's starting not this, not tomorrow, that is next Sunday, but but it's starting next week. So we'd love for you to come, and and just um, learn more about our church. So we have three classes about our church, making the main thing the main thing, what's so special about being a Baptist and getting to the core of what we believe. And so that's just something that they, you know, they're not uh, signing up for something indefinitely. They have to come to for the rest of their lives necessarily. They just want to find out more about who we are. And, you know, if it's something that, that suits them, something that they're looking for, then perhaps that would be helpful. Okay, there's going to be some other things that we're going to be handed out there, but just wanted to make you aware that we're going to take a brief break from what we're talking about um, this morning. And then... Um, and then go from there. All right, so would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. 
if our church is going to be growing spiritually, then we need to do what Ephesians 4 says, which is to speak the truth to one another in love. That means that we need to be people who are in need of change, helping others who are in need of change. And so in the first four classes of this this session on um, biblical counseling, we laid a foundation for biblical counseling of ministering to other people by seeing that the goal of biblical counseling is not changed behavior. It is a changed heart. And so we want to get to the root of uh, where the problem lies, where the change needs to happen. And we also looked in the next two weeks, we looked at the aspect of love, that we need to do this with love. Without love, our proper understanding of the Bible will be like a boat with no oars. And Jesus showed us how we could do that to, to love people as we're ministering to them, as we're speaking the truth to them. And we'll talk about that more today. The next two weeks we looked at the aspect of no, that we need to understand the situation properly before we can speak to the situation. Right? We can't just assume that we understand what the person is going through. Okay? And, and I said that when you think biblical counseling, well, I'm not going to set up an office anywhere and I don't know why this class would be helpful for me. What, what I'm saying is that every Christian does personal ministry with other Christians. That people come up to you and they share their problems with you, and you respond one way or the other. It might be wrong, it might be right. But you respond to them in personal ministry. And so that's why this is so important. And, and so I'm saying when someone comes to you and they just start dumping all of what's going on, you need to understand what's going on. You need to not jump to conclusions. And so we need to know the situation. We need to know how they responded to the situation. We need to know their thoughts. We need to know their motives. And so that means we need to ask some questions. So we took two weeks to look at that. Last week we began to look at the aspect of speak. So love, no, speak, do. This, this, this week is speak. Last week was speak as well. Um, once we have all the information, what do we do with it? Well, we speak the truth to them. Right? Now that we understand, okay, so if we have this problem that's sitting out in front of us and they're looking at the problem one way, remember I said a lot of the times you're not actually fixing the problem. A lot of the times you're actually helping the person see it from the proper perspective, the biblical perspective, so that they can fix the problem or see God fix the problem. Okay, maybe a better way to say that. And so that's what we want to do. We want to be able to speak the truth to them. So now, because they have, okay, instead of this um, this analogy of the object being here, they're looking from this direction, let's think about it in terms of glasses. Okay, they have a certain perspective, a worldview. They're looking at things in a certain light a certain way and we want to take those glasses off and put them put on biblical glasses right kind of like the um, vacation bible school theme a couple years ago we want to put have them see from a biblical worldview how they ought to look at the very same issue that you're looking at and ultimately what is stake at, at stake here is the glory of god and our commitment as we saw last week to the two great commandments which are to love God and to love that person. This is how we show love to God, by loving that person, speaking the truth to that person in love. So this week we want to look at the process of speaking the truth in love. Last week we kind of looked at the motivations, the goal behind it, what we're trying to do there. Here we want to look at the process. All right, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. And would someone read verses 8 through 10? 
All right? So, the way that God's glory is revealed, verse 9, okay, to bring to light this mystery of the gospel that was once hidden. Okay, not that the Old Testament saints didn't have the gospel, but they didn't have the understanding of the gospel that we have. That, that now Jews and Gentiles can come together because of their relationship with Christ. The way that God displays that to the watching world and to the rulers and authorities, verse 10, to the angels, the demons, He shows His great wisdom through the church. Look at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God, how does God show His wisdom? Might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Okay, so... Every relationship is part of how God, every relationship that we have is part of how God is using us to speak the truth to each other. And our goal in these relationships, whether it be someone in your home or someone in your church or someone in your neighborhood at work, our goal is not to advance our own agenda, but to minister to them the Word of God in a way that's loving. Okay, we can say that even about unbelievers. We want to minister the Word of God to them in a way that's loving. And, and by God's grace, He is using people like you to take lost people and suffering people and blind and deceived and self-absorbed and fearful and rebellious people, and He is using you to help mold them into the likeness of His Son. And that's how God shows His wisdom. You know, it's amazing that God... If he wants to put on display his own wisdom to the angels and, and the authorities, which I believe includes the demons because of Ephesians chapter 6, which talks about the rulers and, and authorities, and it refers to the demons there. Okay, God says, here's how I want to show you my wisdom. He doesn't give them a long list of all the things that he's done. He doesn't give them a long uh, a list of all of his character attributes. Instead, he says, you want to see my wisdom? You want to see how great of a God I am? You want to see my glory? Look at the church. Watch how they live among each other. Watch how they treat each other. Watch how they show, show love to one another and speak the truth to one another. Watch how they are changed from people who are lost and rebellious and hating me to people who now love me and are serving me. Not out of compulsion or out of force, right? But out of love. And when you recognize that God is using you to display His wisdom, and He's using you to display His wisdom by speaking the truth to other people, by drawing other people closer to Him, then that's when you're ready to be an instrument of change. So, what does it look like to speak the truth to someone? How, how does this process, process work? Understanding the steps of the confrontation process. The reason I, I say confrontation is because Every time you speak the truth to someone, whether they want it or not, it's a confrontation. Okay, so if a person wants it, it doesn't. Confrontation sounds a little bit harsh, but really it is. It's it's actually speaking the truth to them, um, and and you're confronting them with the truth of God's word. And so if we're going to speak the truth to people, then we need to confront them, and we need to understand what that looks like. Now, when we think of confrontation, we tend to think of reading a list of charges, right? Here's all the things that you've done wrong and here's the things you need to do right. Or, you know, just giving them a piece of our mind. Finally, we've got them in a corner and now we're ready to, to unload on them. But we, we want to uh, instead, okay, go back to the no 
aspect of personal ministry, which is to understand what's going on, and then we want to help lead them to a place where they are are repenting. So, if we're going to to do that, we need to consider this four-step process of confrontation. Four-step process. Okay, before we get to the first one, uh, do you have any questions or comments? All right, number one, consideration. Consideration. Okay, so if it's if we're trying to get the person to have the proper perspective, either to come around to the proper side and look at their problem from God's perspective or to take the glasses off and put on the proper glasses, the proper worldview, then what does what does this person need to see? What what are they missing? How can I help them to see what they don't see right now about their problem? Okay, maybe it's it's not seeing God properly. Maybe they don't see God the way He presents Himself. He reveals Himself. Maybe they don't see themselves properly. Maybe they don't see others properly. You know, Maybe they don't see the truth properly or, or maybe they don't see the need for change. So, how do I need to get them from here where they don't see what they need to see over to here where they do see? When we think of this question, it, it changes our focus of what confrontation is. Right? It's not the list of offenses. Attack mode. Let's get them. Get them to, to, get, to cower down in a, court, in a corner in a fetal position. That's not confrontation from a biblical perspective. Instead it is, I want to get them to see what they currently don't see. Have you ever noticed that when people tell their story of their struggles, they often are not in the story. They tend to focus on all the problems, right? The difficulties of the situation. They tend to focus on the behavior of other people. And what they're not seeing is that they are actually in the problem. Sometimes, obviously, we have situations that are, that are, you know, we have people that are sinning against us and we're wanting to respond rightly. But if we don't ever see that we can respond rightly, like, well, all these people are doing things wrong around me and I, I can't help it. And that's a problem. We need, we need to help them to see that, yeah, while you may be the victim, you still have a right response as the victim. Otherwise, you can be part of the problem if you don't respond rightly. And so we want to help them not by unloading everything that we've ever wanted to say on them. You know, I've been building up this case, and now that now that this issue's come to the surface, this is my opportunity to just unleash on them. But rather, we want to to be um, careful about what we're saying to them. We want to 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 have a pointed. And, and this is not the best word because I'm just telling you it's not an attack, but a pointed attack, a pointed means of confrontation that we go at them and say, listen, I'm, it's, this is not about all these other things that have been bothering me for all these years. Instead, it's about this one thing and I want you to see this from God's perspective. So how do we do this? Well, there are five questions that we can ask and some of these kind of correlate with helping to understand what what's going on. This is, goes back to the no aspect that we looked at. Okay, so first, the situation, what was going on. We want to, we want to um, 
understand what they're going through, not make assumptions. And then secondly, what were their thoughts as the situation were going, was going on? Okay, so we don't we don't want to deal with surface behaviors primarily. Surface behaviors can reveal what's below, but if we only deal with surface behaviors, have we actually fixed the problem? Have we actually helped them? No, because what happens? They trade that behavior for another one, and the the heart is still corrupt, and it still produces all sorts of uh, corruption, and and eventually it will come out in a different way, or in the same way, just in a um, in an elevated way. Thirdly, how did they respond to the problem? So, okay, so if, if um, someone's being mistreated by their spouse, how do they respond to that? And in order for us to understand that, we need to think about some questions. Many people don't think that they can respond in a godly way when there is some sort of difficulty that comes into their life. Many times people think that they're forced to act in sin. Right? Well, I had to treat them this way because they did this. Right? I couldn't help it. It was the only thing they, that, that I could do. Or, you know, I had to do this because he made me so angry. See what that person's doing? I mean, see what we do? We, we say those things as well. Um, we could say blame shifting, but, but the main thing is we're not taking ownership for our proper response to what is going on. And so we want to help them see their thoughts. We want them to help see that their thoughts actually produced their response. Because here's the here's what's going on right now. They got a conflict in their life that's going on, and they think they can only respond one way to this in sin. I have to treat this person that way. I have to respond this way to God because it's the only thing I can do. What we want them to do is see that they're actually thinking about this whole conflict wrongly. They need to come over here, see it from God's perspective, and recognize that their sinful response is because they're thinking about the conflict wrong. You see? Okay, so help connect their thoughts. Sorry, a little explosion out there. Um, Help them to connect their thoughts to their sinful response so that they know that, actually, you know what? no matter how people treat me, I actually can respond rightly. Is that true, by the way? Can, can we respond rightly no matter how people treat us? Are there any examples in the Scriptures of someone who was mistreated? Okay, Joseph? Anybody else? Christ? Yes. Right? We can respond rightly no matter how people mistreat us. And that's what we want to help the person to see. We can't change what the other person's doing. We can't change the circumstances in our life a lot of times. But we can change how we respond to all those things. Right? We can change how we respond. And that's what we want them to see. Listen. Okay, your sinful response to this, even though you may be the victim, your sinful response comes from your wrong thoughts about the situation. So, if they make that connection between their own responsibility to do right, even in the face of difficult people, difficult circumstances, then the solution that that person is going to seek is to uh, not change the people around them, but rather to change how they respond to those people. 
That's what we want them to see. Okay? Because I can tell you by nature, just from my own personal experience, my, my own sinful responses to situations, is that by nature we tend to, to look to change the people and the circumstances instead of our responses to those things. And if we can help people to start making that connection, we're going to be um, taking them a lot longer. Okay, it's it's the difference between uh, you know giving them fish and teaching them to fish. All right, the giving them the fish would be I'm going to get this situation corrected by taking this out of their life. So, okay, I, I suggest you get a divorce. Right? Okay, now now that problem's gone. So we've given them the little fish they want, which is. Can we turn that outside one off? Um, so the giving them the fish would be, okay, I'm just going to get rid of the problem. But but actually teaching them the fish is actually to correct the problem. Actually help them to see that, that they can respond rightly even if the problem exists. Okay, next is motives. Why did they do this? Again, this is a lot more difficult. I, I gave the example last time we looked at this of, uh, you know, why do we come to church? Okay, so just think about why you came to church this morning. Okay, for me, I'm the pastor. I have a speaking responsibility. You expect me to be here. I want to be a good, good example for my children. I want to grow spiritually. I want to, you know, I want to worship God through praise and through giving and through, um, and through uh, learning from His Word. So we start asking the question, why? And um, so, so although it is difficult, if we can start to get to the heart of the issue, uh, we will we will actually um, start to see how we can correct some of these things. It's not enough, Jesus said in Matthew twenty three, twenty five, to have the outside of the dish clean or the outside of the cup clean, right? We don't. That's not what we're trying to produce here. A bunch of people in our church or in our life who just have the outside of the cup clean while the inside is dirty. That's of no value. It's like a, an, a sepulcher, Jesus says, right? It's nice and whitewashed on the outside, but it's full of what? Right. So we want to, we want to see real change. And, um, and that's only going to happen as we get to the, the, the core of the issue. Um. These motives are, again, difficult to, to discover, but when you do, they will help you to, to help that person to see from the proper perspective. So perhaps there's a, a man who abuses his wife physically because he doesn't see any other options. You know, I, I, I feel like I have to do this. because, and, and as you start to ask questions, you realize that he feels he has to do that because he's not getting respect in the home or because he's not getting his way. You see, his heart craves something that he can't force. And he's seeking that respect all in the wrong way. He thinks respect comes through getting his way, being served. And yet Jesus taught us most pointedly that respect doesn't come through being served. It is through serving. And, and so this guy only serves as long as it's reciprocated, right? As long as it's brought back to him, I'm happy to serve people. But that's not the kind of, of service that 
that a Christian should be looking for. Jesus said in Luke, I think it's Luke uh, 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, even unbelievers love those who love them. Even unbelievers serve those who serve them. Or, or they do kind things for them. They lend to those who lend, you know, who are going to return the money. But here, here's the real test of whether you're a Christian. Can you serve someone who's not going to serve you back? Can you love someone who's not going to love you back? And obviously the answer has to be as Christians, yes, we have to. And that can happen even within our closest relationships, even within our, our relationships here at this church. The fifth question that we would ask is, what is the result? Okay, This question seeks to uncover the connection between the consequences and the thoughts and the motives. So, as fallen hum- human beings, we are good at denying our own crops, right? Paul says, you reap what you sow. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. But we're good at denying our own crops. We're like, well, those aren't ours. If you had a spouse like I had, then you would understand. And you would yell at her too. Or you would treat her in this way too. Um, you know, they really pushed my buttons. See, we're, we, we want these people to step back, pull back away from all this conflict that's bringing up all this emotion and examine the fruit of their lives. Okay, what is this fruit coming from? Why are you reaping this conflict? Sometimes, again, conflict comes from outside of us. It's not something that we cause, but, but perhaps it is because of something we cause, right? Maybe we contributed to the conflict. Now, we need to be very careful about how we respond uh, when they're sharing their struggles, too. Okay, If you're trying to help someone, sometimes we actually do damage by... Uh, by being so concerned about how they feel that we sympathize with them in a way that's not helpful. Let me try to explain that through an example. So if a husband approaches you um, and spills all this dirt about his wife and how he had to respond in a sinful way, what I'm saying is it would not be helpful for you to respond with, you know, I struggle with that too. I struggle with difficult spouse too. Or, you know, all married couples go through that every now and then. Because what we're doing is we're actually telling them that what they're doing is okay. It's kind of common. Other people deal with it. Now, the other extreme is that we're like, well, you know, you need to, you need to deal with it. And, you know, I, thankfully I never sin and I don't have that problem. But for you, you need, to, you need to work on that. So obviously there's two extremes you need to avoid. But I think sometimes we, we don't want to hurt their feelings. And so we, we, we sympathize with them in a wrong way. And, and what they do is they make the connection that this conflict is here. They've contributed to the conflict. We've now discovered that they've contributed to it. And now we're saying, it's okay, everybody does this over here. No, that's not what Christians are to be doing. We're supposed to be over here looking at it from God's perspective, responding rightly from His perspective. Okay, so that means um, that, that we need to be careful to gather information and... Um, and recognize that, that a lot of this information that we need to make to speak to them is not going to come in one conversation in the foyer, okay, or after church. Sometimes it takes time, and, and you know, if you're concerned about them, then just ask to meet with them. You know, can we, can we have a meal together and just talk? And it seems like this is 
something that that is really difficult and that, that you're you're struggling through. Okay, so our first goal is to give them a window into their behavior and more importantly into their system of worship that directs their behavior. Okay, we want to give them a window into their behavior. Help them to do like we're going to talk about with David and Nathan, you know, help them to step outside of their circumstances, see their circumstances from from a proper perspective. And if we can, even show them a window into their heart. Okay, now, Jeremiah says that we can't know the heart, right? Who can know it? But the Scriptures can, right? The very next verse is, the Lord searches the heart. So the Scriptures can search the heart. And so that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to show them the mirror of God's Word. Okay, this is how you're living. Let me show you. Okay, the standard is not me. That's why it's not helpful for us to sympathize. Oh, I do that too. Or, you know, every Christian deals with that. That's not helpful. Instead, here's the standard. This is what God expects of Christians. And Christians don't treat their spouses this way. So start treating your spouse properly. Start figuring out why you're treating your spouse this way and and deal with it. Okay? So we're we're showing them a a mirror into God's Word. And, And by the way, that's why you don't have to cower behind what you say as if you have no authority. You do have authority on the basis of God's Word. Right? It's the same thing for me when I preach. I don't have to cower behind what I say because I work hard to understand that this is from God. And I try to show you that. Okay, not this is, you know, this is my idea. I've really been wanting to talk to you about this. And now I found a proof text to show you. That's why I work through the, the, the text of Scripture, you know, just uh, systematically. One text after another. This is what. This is what I'm trying to understand, what God says. Now, I want to show you, here, let me, let me show you what God says. Now, here's why you need to respond. Not because I think you need to respond this way, but because this is God's Word. This is God speaking to us. And that's how you minister to other people. And that's the only way that you're going to see real change, by the way. That's the only way, is if you speak on behalf of God's Word. Any questions on that first one, which took more time than should have probably. Any questions or comments? All right. So I assume you have that one down. Next, confession. The next logical step is confession. So once you've get, gotten them to see the proper perspective, you brought them over to this side, now they see from God's perspective, they actually have seen a window into their heart. The next thing that needs to happen is that you need to lead them toward confession. Not confession to you, okay? And, and the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we're very good at confession as Christians. But not confession of our own sins. Confession of other people's sins. And Tripp points out that there's three kinds of confession that we're very good at. Confessing our sins to God, anger. Confessing, or I'm sorry, confessing their sins to God. We're angry at them. We're angry at God. Kind of like what's going to happen this morning with um, the people of Israel and Moses. The second is confessing their sin to myself. And that results in bitterness, right? I'm so bitter at what they're doing because I just can't stand their sin and I don't know how to deal with that properly. And then thirdly is confessing their sin to other people. What would that be? Gossip, right? And so we are good at confessing other people's sin, but the Bible calls us not to confess other people's sin but our own. And so that's what you need to help them to see. Okay, what should be the response if you're responding to this conflict in the wrong way, now that you've come over here and 
seeing it from God's perspective, how ought you to respond? And that can really just come in the form of a question. And as a Christian, they'll know that this next step is necessary. Even when people are exposed to the light, they tend to deny and revise history and explain it and accuse and blame and defend and argue and rationalize and simply hide from the truth. But confession is necessary. Okay, It's not enough for them to see into the mirror of God's Word, is it? If they just see it and do nothing about it, has, has that helped any? No, it's not going to help their problem at all. They need to actually come and, and acknowledge this before God. God, I have sinned against you. And, and of course, when we sin, we always sin against God. Okay? Any, anytime you sin against someone else, we, we tend to think, well, I need to get it right with that person. And we do. But, but every sin is a sin against God. God is always the most offended party in your sin and in my sin. Okay? And so when, when our kids uh, sin and we talk with them, we encourage them that they need to get right with the, person, the, the people that they sinned against or the person that they sinned against and with God. So before the end of the day, you need to talk to God. Okay? And just talk to Him about your sin. Tell Him what you've done. And this is what we need to do with that person, okay? Um, if you sinned against this person and you've contributed to this problem, then you need to confess your sin to that person and ask for forgiveness. And you also need to confess your sin to God. Thirdly, commitment. Commitment. Ephesians 4, 22-24 talks about putting off and putting on. The principle of putting off evil and putting on righteousness. It's not enough to put off that former way of living. Okay, if we just make an empty space in our life, okay, you know, if, if someone steals, it's not enough for them to stop stealing. Okay, Paul talks about, he, he goes through several examples there in Ephesians, and he says, to him who stole, steal no more. Yes, put that off. But, but also, you need to give. You need, this person needs to learn how to um, pay back, you know, in retribution what he's taken from people. If, you, if you're angry, well, Stop being angry, yes. But, but instead, you need to start living in love. Okay, so what kind of commitments does this person need to make? Now that they've seen their sin, they've confessed their sin, they're seeing it now from God's perspective, they're putting something off, but what do they need to put on to replace that? What kind of acts of righteousness do they need to put on? So help them to see that. And, um, you know, obviously every sin that's committed is common to man. So you can find examples in Scripture and from your own life to help them. This is where you start to sympathize with them and say, this is how I've handled this situation. Okay, When I've responded in anger, here's how I replace it with acts of love and mercy. And then change. Okay, The goal of confrontation is genuine change. It's not enough for a person to see what he's doing is wrong. It's not enough for him to confess his sin. And it's even not enough to commit to do right. Change doesn't take place, and here comes a very profound statement, until change has taken place. Okay? And did you notice this is the last part of it? Because if we focus on this change at the very beginning, what's going to happen? It's all going to be behavioral change. Right? We would want to change the outside of the cup. Make it nice and clean. But we've worked to understand the conflict, help them to see what they're doing, give them a window into it from God's perspective, help them to see that they need to confess, forsake, replace, 
and now we want to see the change. And so we, we encourage them in that way. We help them to, to be accountable, and, um, and uh, that, will, that will take them a long way into genuine change. Okay? By the way, the best part about learning how to be a good counselor is that you'll be able to help your own self. Right? We need to be able to counsel ourselves when we go through sin problems, when we struggle with responding wrongly. And, uh, and as you're able to counsel yourself properly, you will get better at helping other people do it. Right? Okay, any questions or comments? I want to look at an example here. So turn to 2 Samuel 12, and as you're turning, you let me know if you have any questions or comments. 2 Samuel 12. All right, so we've talked about the why of confrontation. That was the goals last week. We've talked about the what of confrontation. That's what we just did. And uh, having trouble finding 2 Samuel there, but... All right, now we want to talk about the how of biblical confrontation. What does this look like? And how do we do this in a way that would demonstrate love and that would be helpful in showing them their problem? Because a lot of times people are blinded by their own sin. We are blinded by our own sin. We need other people to come along and say, listen, do you see this? And here's a gr- really helpful example, one that you're familiar with, of how to do confrontation. One, one example of how to do confrontation. This is not the only way that confrontation happens, but confrontation is best done when we come alongside of them and say, come here, let me, let me, let me show you something. You see this? And, and we do it as a, a loving friend. We, we might do it through questions, as Jesus does. We might do it through a story, like Nathan does here. Um, but but confrontation is best done when it's in a conversational type way. Okay, so let's say that we've gone through all the process of um, we've we've uh, tried to do it with all in love, but we we try to understand carefully their what's going on. We try to understand their conflict properly. Now we're ready to speak, and now it's all monologue. All right, I'm doing the talking, you do the listening. And that, that can be helpful, that can be necessary, um, that can be the way that we do that, but I think the best way to do it is in the form of a conversation, the form of a dialogue. Jesus would often do this. He would ask questions of the people who were attacking him. Then he would wait for a response. Sometimes they wouldn't respond. Sometimes they would respond and just give the, the standard pat answer. But, but whatever the case is, he would ask a question, wait for a response, and then he would explain. And sometimes he would explain just by teaching. You know, uh, Other times it would be through a story. And uh, that's what Nathan does here. He, he comes alongside and makes this kind of a dialogue, conversational confrontation. And he comes up to King David, and notice verse 1. He came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And was like a daughter to him. Okay, so you have this one guy with this one lamb, and he cares for him very carefully. Uh, Now, verse 4, Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd, 
to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Okay, so here's how Nathan decides he's going to approach David on about what? What's the conflict that's going on with David at this time? Okay, so his sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and what other sin? Murder, okay, lying to the nation, um, uh, really putting um, his officer, was it Joab at the time, I'm not sure, uh, in, a, in a bad position. Okay, so Nathan's called to confront King David with this murder and adultery, but instead of coming into the, to the throne room of David and listing out all these charges, David, you have sinned against God. Instead, he confronts him in a way that would be helpful for David to see his own sin. And he shows, he takes a story that David doesn't recognize is actually about him, and he shows him the severity of the issue. How could such a, a, a low-down, wicked person take from someone who had very little? And he shows David the, the degree of spiritual blindness that, that although David was the king, he killed a soldier after committing adultery with his wife, and then he brings her into the palace to live with him. And what you're going to find, too, is, is that the greater the sin, the greater the spiritual blindness. Okay, so, so it's going to be difficult for them to see their own sin. And, and the reason that's the case is because there have been levels of blindness that the, people have been, that the person has been ignoring. That they've ignored the sin, ignored it, ignored it, justified it. Right? And then it gets bigger and bigger, and it gets more and more justified. And all of a sudden, it's this huge thing, and they don't even recognize the weight of what they have done. In fact, this is probably nine months to a year after this sin has taken place. So Nathan is, is patient with him. He gives him time to respond instead of coming at him. It does, there's no sense that Nathan comes to him with furious anger or rage like, David, you know, you ought to die for this, which he ought to have died for that sin of adultery and murder. And he uses this story. The, the genius of the story is that David can relate to this. David understands, you know, sheep. David understands being poor. He understands stolen sheep. And Nathan doesn't get into all the details of the story, but he's very specific on the application. Notice David's response. Here in verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He deserves to die. David recognizes the sin of this rich man. And this is what Nathan's going to use to expose David to his own sin. And that's where Nathan replies in verses 7 to 12, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who appointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel, Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword. And then the, the consequences come. And amazingly, David, David doesn't respond with blame shifting or, you know, I, it's the only way I could respond in that situation. Notice how he responds in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. 
Okay, so, so what's happened here? Okay, if we go back to our process, we have confronted them with their sin, and now he's actually gotten to the place where he's come around and look at, looked at this conflict in his life, this sin. He's looked at it from a proper perspective, and he's confessed it. And we know from Psalm 51 that he commits to forsake it because that's the psalm that he uses. You know, um, Lord, my sin is ever before me. And Nathan, Nathan assures David of God's forgiveness. And here's a great thing that, that we can learn from Nathan's confrontation with David. Verse 13, I, um, at the end of the verse, Nathan said, The Lord also has taken away from your sin. You shall not die. However, because by the seed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. It doesn't mean that your sin is without consequences, but here's the thing. God has wiped away your sin. You can be sure, David, of God's forgiveness. Here's how we can help people when we are confronting them with their sin. We help them to see it from God's perspective. We help lead them to a place where they're confessing it to God and to that person. We help them commit to change. And then as we're, we're wanting to see genuine change, in that process, we want to remind them of God's forgiveness. Remind them of God's forgiveness. That God is with you. God has not abandoned you because of your sin. And sometimes, especially when there is a great sin involved, the person that just feels like, I can't do anything right. God cannot accept me because of this sin. And so we remind them that on, basic, on the basis of Jesus and His righteousness, you are accepted before God. So there are several types of interaction that we can use. Um, we can use a monologue in some cases. Um, two-way communication. Instead of coming in with guns ablazing, um, not giving the person an opportunity to talk, we, we help them to make the connections by asking questions along the way. Help them to connect the dots so that they actually see what's going on. Maybe we use metaphors like Jesus does. Remember um, when the lawyer asked who was his neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Luke 10. How did Jesus respond? Who is my neighbor? The Good Samaritan. He tells a story. He doesn't actually respond to the question. He doesn't actually do it in the form of a statement. Um, when he's talking to the Pharisees about eating with tax collectors and sinners, they're mad at him for doing this, condemning him. He responds with three metaphors. Instead of saying, no, it is right for me to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Instead, he tells them three stories. The, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost what? lost son, right? The prodigal son. Those three in Luke 15, I think it is. Okay, so there's another way that we can do it is through metaphors uh, like Nathan does here. We can also use questions. Um, you know, we could come up to a person who is who is abusing their spouse and who's, who comes, or maybe let, let's take it a little bit more common, something more common. You know, I, I can't, someone coming up to you and saying, I can't have imagine having a worse spouse than the one that I have. And instead of you saying, you know, you have the spouse that God gave you. God gave you that spouse. We could say that. But wouldn't it be more helpful if we, if we said something like this? Does God know who your spouse is? Or what does Romans 8.28 say about how God is using your spouse to shape you into the image of Christ? Right? Wouldn't it be more helpful to ask it in the form of a question so they can make the connection? Okay, well, what does Romans 8.28 say? And how is God working all things together for good, even my spouse that is hard to deal with? Okay, so speaking the truth in love involves confrontation and 
confrontation is often produced in the soil of interaction. It doesn't mean we can't make clear and bold statements. Sometimes we need to do that. But uh, Paul seems to do that with Peter. Right? I oppose him to his face. But, but I'm thankful for godly people in my life who love me enough to confront me, who are not satisfied with the status quo. Now, those kind of people that are in your life are a gift from God that, that wake us up from our spiritual sleep to remind us to, to remove the blinders from our eyes. And I want to be that kind of person in the Christians that God has put in my life as well. Friends, we have been called to be ambassadors of God. We have the greatest privilege in the world. We are calling people who are rebellious, self-absorbed people to pursue holiness for the sake of God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you loved us enough to confront us with our sin. You showed us what we were doing. What, what we were doing was wrong and was opposed to you and was leading us on a path toward destruction. And so we're thankful that you loved us in that, that way. Help us to, to love others in that way by confronting them with their sin. As we develop deeper relationships with them, Lord, not to seek out people's sins and, and become the, the, um, the holy conscience for each person in our church, but to develop deep relationships, particularly with a few people, and be able to confront them when their sin is exposed. And to help them to see their sin from your perspective, to confess it, to commit to forsake it, and to actually change. And Lord, help us to be willing to have people do the same to us. We pray in Jesus' name.